Well, good morning again, and to anyone just joining with us online, uh, welcome. And we gather together on this October 1st, and if we look outside, or if we have spent any amount of time outside, we know that summer has officially come to a close. Pastor Rolly is about halfway home, so that means the season of the Filipino visit is over as well. It was an incredible blessing, and there was a great deal of planning and prep and execution that went into their visit over here, and um, I really want to thank our church family for their part in bringing these brothers and sisters, June and Rolly, and their wives, Amy and Marilyn. Um, they had a great trip, and I have had good report from both of them as to how encouraged they've been about the whole, the whole visit. And I think that uh, it has been incredibly good for us as a church. I know that uh, our primary reason for bringing them out was to encourage them and for us to just get to know them and be able to put faces to names and pray for them personally rather than just as those people over there. But it has also drummed up in, in our congregation a much greater commitment to community, to fellowship, and to hospitality, to service of one another. And I've been seeing that grow and continue over the last number of weeks, and I would Pray and ask that that would continue in your hearts as we go forward from here. That the next time we bring them here, whenever that might be, or that when we meet them in glory otherwise, that they might see and know an Elk Point Baptist Church that is even more committed, even more dedicated to loving and caring for our fellowship of believers. Probably one of the things that if I could change something about their visit, June and Amy, because of how condensed their schedule was, um, they, they never got to get out to visit the mountains. Thankfully, Auntie Faye and her husband took uh, Rolly and Marilyn straight out there, right, basically right off the plane. Um, but they, they got a taste of the mountains, and um, they got to see one of the greatest sights that planet Earth has to offer. I think it's something that uh, we can quite easily forget given how easily accessible it is. Like I remember when I lived in Calgary, being one time in dorms at 8 o'clock at night, we were just sitting there in kind of one of the common rooms, going, let's go to Banff. And we loaded up at 8 o'clock at night and drove out to Banff and wandered around the streets of Banff from like midnight until 2 o'clock and then slept in their car and came back for class the next morning. But sometimes we forget how amazing these mountains are and that for many people around the world, the Rocky Mountains that are relatively easy for us to ac access, um, they compare with the Grand Canyon or the Great Barrier Reef or the sand dunes of the Sahara Desert on the list of incredible sights to see in the bucket list of natural wonders on planet Earth. And maybe we forget about that, but I don't know about you, but when I actually get out to the mountains and I am standing next to them, 
all of a sudden there is a real reminder of the grandeur of our God's creation. There's this awe and this smallness. And I think that's a good thing for us as people to experience. We are not the center of our universe. And that comes pretty clear when we see all of these mountains and the things that God has done, and we go, we're not the center of the story, are we? And I hope that starting this morning that we get a chance to experience something similar next to the words of Scripture as found in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 11. But as we read and study and preach and meditate and discuss that God would be big and that we would be small and we would find our rightful place standing next to the accounts of the origin of all things and the creator's dealing with his creation. One thing that has always fascinated me about the Rocky Mountains is that they are watersheds that contain the origins of, at least in our area of Canada, three separate major rivers. The Athabasca, the North Saskatchewan, and the South Saskatchewan, all of them originate there. About 90% of the water that runs south of town here through the North Saskatchewan River comes off of the slopes of the Rocky Mountains. Not every drop in these rivers find their source, their genesis in the mountain heights, but without the Rockies, these rivers don't exist. And in a lot of ways, the book of Genesis functions in a similar way, flowing forth from the first words, the first verses and chapters of Scripture, we get a taste of just about every element of Christian thought and theology. Some of you, many of you, will likely be familiar with the name Ken Ham. He's the CEO of Answers in Genesis. And just uh, about a week and a half ago, he was at the uh, G3 National Conference on the Sovereignty of God in Atlanta, Georgia. And when interviewed earlier, and he restated similarly at this conference, he was asked, why the... Why Genesis? Why is this book so important? I thought it would be worthwhile for you to hear his, his response because Ken Ham is all about Genesis. Why Genesis? This was his answer. Every single biblical doctrine of theology, directly or indirectly, is founded in Genesis 1-11. to Think about it. Why was Jesus called the last Adam? took the place of the first Adam, Genesis 1-11. to Why did he die on a cross? Because of what happened in Genesis 1-11. to did, Where did sin come from? Genesis 1-11. to Why do we die? Genesis 1-11. to Why do we have a seven-day week? Genesis 1-11. to Why does man have dominion over the animals, over the creation, and not creation dominion over us? Genesis 1-11. to Why do we have to work and work hard? Genesis 1-11. to There's a doctrine of work. Why are there two genders? Genesis 1 to 11. Marriage, Genesis 1 to 11. There were a few others that he added, but when he was speaking to the G3 conference, he ended with this. Do you think Genesis 1 to 11 is important? 
It's the foundation for everything. And you're not going to be able to deal with any issue at all unless we start to teach people to start with the Word of God. Because that is the ultimate authority. You're not going to be able to read Genesis 1-11 to and go, I now know the Gospel. But you are not going to be able to appreciate the depths of the Gospel until you have come to terms with what we find in Genesis 1-11. to So Lord willing, we'll spend the next number of months diving into this foundational watershed of a book. And we're going to see whether Genesis does indeed give us the biblical foundation that many of us have so long assumed, although maybe we haven't studied a whole lot since we were in Sunday school as a kid. And we're going to find out whether Genesis is, as the world claims, just a collection of origin myths that at best might have some decent moral lessons and at worst are deceptions that ought to be done away with entirely. We are going to dive into the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And that is going to be no small task. I would encourage you to be in your own devotion, spending time in Genesis 1-11 to as I preach Genesis 1-11. to If I read something wrong, I want you to go, that doesn't sound like what I read. I want you to be familiar enough with this to discuss it, to chew on it, and that you're not hearing it as new information. I know Genesis 1-11 to is a series of chapters that is easy for us to skim over because we're familiar with them. Like, okay, the Noah story, okay, this happened and that happened, okay. But read it and read it like you're reading it for the first time. And as we're going to pray this morning, pray right now, we will ask that God would illuminate these words that sometimes we take for granted and apply them to our hearts in a new way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us to wonder at where we came from. You have not left us to wonder who it is that orchestrated these things. We are not left to come up with a God of our own design and making, that we are not left to our own devices, but Lord, that you have given us our history, you have given us our structure for life, You have given us the truth that is found in your word that we might know you and we might worship you and we might be reconciled to you from the sin that we have committed. And Lord, as we come to these first 11 chapters of Genesis, Lord, we ask that you would give us new eyes and soft hearts, that these truths that we could gloss over, these truths that maybe we haven't fully wrestled with, would hit us in the face, O Lord, that we would not be able to do anything but wrestle with these truths and come to terms with them and to understand them and to, as we do so, glorify you for what you have done and who you are. Lord, may you be big and we be small. 
may we find our rightful place before you. And as we do so, may we glorify you with every fiber of our being. Speak to us by your word through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you for these things and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So, at one point up there, I saw Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. That was our passage for this morning. But I decided that that was far too large of a passage. So, I had to ax it a little, cutting it in half. Genesis 1, 1. Two verses was too much. So I'd ask that you would turn with me to Genesis 1, 1. And if you don't know where that is, if you can count, count to 1. Find page 1 and you should be right in the right place. Maybe you'll have to flip through some table of contents. I have the bookmark in my Bible there for Genesis 1, 1, so I don't have to fight with the publication page. But Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Like I said, there's so much of Genesis 1 to 11 that is easy for us to skim past, take for granted, and assume. What more than in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? Any of us who are readers know, particularly readers of good fiction, but nonfiction biographies, same kind of thing, the first chapter of a book is always incredibly important. These first words set the tone for everything that comes afterwards. And if you're thinking, okay, chapter one of a book, what is going to be one of the most important things that this one chapter is going to have to do? What's this book about? Who's this book about? Who's the main character? Who is the hero? The beginning of, I'm currently reading the, uh, the biography of J.I. Packer. If I can get through the first couple sentences of the biography of J.I. Packer without realizing that the book is about J.I. Packer, there's, there's something going wrong here. And we know that the Bible is a collection of 66 books, but they are not separate books, but they are all elements of the one overarching story of God. And the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book gives us the main character of everything to be found in here. It gives us the main character of all of creation, all of history. Surprise, surprise, my name is not in verse 1. Your name is not in verse 1. Sorry. The main character. And it's not Adam. It's not Abraham. It's not Moses. It's not the patriarchs or the prophets or the priests or the kings or the apostles. In the beginning, God. This is not our story. The Bible is not the story of mankind. 
The Bible is not your story of how you came to faith. The Bible is God's story. Sometimes I've been amazed when I've seen preachers and they've managed to preach entire messages on like one verse or maybe one phrase or just one word and they break it all down. And I just, I look at the verses and go, how, how did you get an entire sermon out of that? Genesis, that's not a problem. It's not the case here. I could break it down to just those first four words. Those first four words could easily and have filled volumes of people writing on them. But in the interest of not spending the entire rest of my pastoral tenure on the 6,000 or so words in Genesis, we're going to have to zoom out a little bit at some point. Today is not that point. Today we're sticking with verse 1. But we're not going to go verse by verse through Genesis. We'll get past it eventually. But there's a lot to take here. So first point, if you're collecting things down, this book, Genesis in general, the Bible in general, this is God's story, not ours. Got three other points that we're going to look at. Three great truths about God. The first is God's eternal existence. Second is God's self-existence. And third, and this will kind of catch a few other things, God's otherness. First, God's eternal existence. When we approach anything in life, we, we do so with a particular lens, with a particular worldview of how we see anything. And that lens, that worldview, allows us to interpret what we see, what we do, what we feel, what we experience, and otherwise. And that's why when two people experience something, they can experience the exact same thing very differently. And I'm not just talking about like the Gospels where we have four different viewpoints of the same thing. Two people in the exact same spot experiencing the exact same thing will experience it very, very differently. I look at a bowl of jello and I see a delicious dessert. I am excited. I see this bowl of jello. Someone who has experienced the bowl of jello as a you're terribly sick, so you're eating nothing but jello for the next two weeks as a child grows up and then goes, I'm never looking at jello again. And if you try to feed me jello, it's not happening. Total aversion versus appreciation. The same goes for our greater approach to the world around us. I see a picture of an ultrasound of an unborn human child, and I see a new life that God has made. When I look at a sunset, I see God's handiwork in designing such beauty and creation. When I experience a hard situation in life, I at least try to see that even in the midst of that difficulty, 
there are the fingerprints of the one who orders all things for the good of those who love him. I say I at least try because I don't always do that perfectly or even often do that perfectly. But the reason why I see these things one way and so many of our world sees them differently is because I approach things from a certain worldview. And one of the elements of my worldview is I approach with a theistic worldview, meaning I believe that there is a God. Uh, the most broadest form of the term. There is some sort of God, some sort of greater, higher power. I take the Bible at its word. In the beginning, God. And that is totally different to the way I would experience and view these things if I was approaching from an atheistic, a there-is-no-God worldview. And that is theism, there is a God. Atheism, there is no God. And we can't simply take for granted that we are talking to people or we are, in, are interacting with people or we even in the family with people that have the same worldview and lens that we do. Theistic or atheistic. Maybe agnostic. Agnostic is where, honestly, a lot of people who are proclaimed atheist actually fall. They don't say there's definitely no God, but they're agnostic. So they, maybe there's a God, but I haven't gotten enough evidence to prove or disprove him. And maybe he's not even knowable, but there could be, foreseeably. Or maybe they're pantheistic. The universe conceived of as a whole is God. There is no specific God, but the combined substance, forces, and laws are manifested in the existing universe. The first words of this book give us the foundation to the Christian worldview. The theistic, specifically the monotheistic, the one God worldview. Our God is not limited to the confines of the universe as we know it. We're going to break this first phrase down. In the beginning. The beginning of what? We're going to get super basic here. The beginning of what? The beginning of everything. The moment that the hands of time first started ticking when the universe began to exist. And interestingly, the way that this is phrased in the beginning, it actually also implies a bracketed time frame. In the beginning is also paired with in the end. And regularly throughout scriptures, it bounces back and forth between those two things. And it implies that there's going to be an end. Um, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Or maybe the one you're most familiar with, Revelation 22:13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
if we know our Bibles at all, we know that there is, as we see today, there was a definite beginning, and we're somewhere in between that beginning, and we do know also that there will be an end of all things. And our universe is encapsulated between those two bookends. There's a beginning and there's an end. And God is not in this capsule. God is beyond our encapsulated beginning and end. Our God is far bigger than that. You'll remember what Tim read from John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The tense here. The Word made flesh, Jesus Christ was. God was. He did not become, he did not appear, he did not emerge, he was. God did not start to exist when the time clock started ticking. God has always been from before our universe ever existed, and he will always be. In the beginning, God. The word that our passage uses here for God is interesting. It uses the word Elohim. That word, Elohim, is used over 2,000 times throughout Scripture. And it has a variety of different uses. You can have Elohim as the uppercase G God of the Bible, the God that we worship, Elohim is also usable for the lowercase g gods, the gods of the peoples. And it's interesting that here Elohim is used in the plural. And if it's used in the plural, why is it not in the beginning gods? It's in the beginning God. Now, if you're like me and kind of thinking ahead, you go, oh, God, it's plural because Trinity, God, three in one, that's why it's plural. Draw that direct line, call it good. Don't do that. Genesis is a book where it'll be really easy to draw a lot of like direct lines. This means that in the future. Oftentimes it's this, hints at that in the future, but in the, in the passage it means a whole bunch of other things. And this is one of those situations. The fullness of Trinitarian theology doesn't really start to coalesce until we get into the New Testament. Because we, we know and we get hints, we get pieces of, we see God the Father and God's Spirit. and we, don't, we know that there's a Messiah, but we don't get the fullness of who God the Son is until it ties together in the New Testament. With 2020 hindsight and thousands of years of theological thought and study, yes, I do believe that there are whispers of the Trinity here in the way that this word is used, but that's not the sole purpose. And people reading this for the first time when it was written, they wouldn't have gone Trinity. They would have gone in Hebrew this plural use of this word indicates and implies a 
greater honor and majesty and amazingness of who this person is. So when we, you know that feeling when you're standing next to the mountains and you're just, ah. That is what this is capturing here. In the beginning, God. So don't write off the Trinity here. It is there. But first, God. I think it's also interesting that we don't get a personal name for God. Like all of chapter one, we get Elohim, 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 Elohim. And we don't get a personal name for God, Yahweh, until chapter two. I think, at least in my mind, and I, if you pressed me on it, I don't know how firmly I could back this up, but I think that part of the reason why we keep getting Elohim here is that he's the only one. He's the only anything that exists. No need for a personal name by which to be addressed if there is no addressor. But bedrock to our faith and utterly foundational to everything that we believe as Christians, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, eternally before and after our universe, God was and is and is to come. That leads us to our second great truth about God. Not only does he exist eternally, but he is also self-existent. If God is, as we're saying, outside of and beyond and eternally before any semblance or shred of creation, then he cannot be made up of the universe, as, say, a pantheist would say. God cannot be the world around us or the force that exists in the world around us because he existed before any of this was, before anything was. God cannot be who we believe him to be unless he exists in and of himself. Some of you will likely know by now that Paul's address to the Athenian Areopagus is probably one of my favorite passages passages of scripture in Acts 17. And in there he quotes a Greek poet. I'm not going to get too much into that, but he is reframing these words of some of the local poets. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. In a similar vein, Job says in Job 12.10, In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. It is within God. Our very existence is within God. Nothing exists outside of him. To say that there is no God is of the same manner, though to a greater degree, as us here today saying there is no earth. Whether there is an earth is not exactly up for debate. I can look out the window. There's an earth out there. I can, okay, there's something here. And the earth is not overly affected as to whether I believe that it's there or not. The earth simply is. Probably the clearest statement from Scripture to this effect 
is God's identification of himself to Moses and the Israelites. I absolutely, I've always just been amazed by this. God says to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It's interesting. God is the only one who can say this. The only one who's ever been able to say this. Our existence as finite human beings will always be a qualified existence. That's why James teaches us when we're making plans that we're supposed to say, if the Lord wills, we will go and do this or that. Anything we do, anything at all is totally dependent. Our very breath that is in our lungs, that we have a heartbeat a second from now, that the universe would still exist a second from now, is totally dependent upon the will and good pleasure of the Creator. In whom and by whom and through whom we exist. We are, I can acknowledge, you're sitting there, you are, but we only are because God has willed it. We only are because he is. Why? Because he is dependent on no one and nothing else. We are dependent on his will and good pleasure. He depends on no one and nothing. Our Lord Jesus said in John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to also have life in himself. We have life in God. The trees have life in God. The rocks exist in God. Our universe exists in God's goodwill and pleasure. God is. I am. Period. Not I am because, not I am be I am. And that brings us to our last one, God's otherness. There is no other I am. Something about these two truths. There is nothing else that is eternal from eternity past to eternity future. Something about these first two truths should spark in us an awareness that there is this huge gulf that God is over here and we are, some are way over there and there is this huge gap between the two where God is different from us. True story. When I was in university, I had a good friend named Ben. Ben and I were both kind of oddballs, and he was really smart. Him and I had all sorts of great conversations, and we spent a lot of time together, and while we were spending time together, eventually I started bringing up this Sherry girl, and that became a regular topic of conversation, and shortly after Sherry and I started actually dating, Ben, unironically and with not an ounce of malice or anything in his voice, looked at me with a kind of pride and hopefulness, and he said, if you can get a girl like Sherry, that gives hope for the rest of us. <laughs> I was not going to argue with him. Like, if you can land a girl like her, all the rest of us normal guys have a shot. 
I wasn't going to argue with him. And there are some cases where a guy clearly manages to bat out of his league and ends up with an incredible woman. Um, a song that became defining for Sherry and I was from Reliant K, and it's called Must Have Done Something Right. And one of the lines in that song is, we should get jerseys because we make a good team, but yours would look better than mine because you're out of my league. I've always loved that song. But sometimes this happened where the guy sits back and goes, there's, she's over here, and I'm somewhere over there. There's a huge gap in between. I don't know how I ended up with a woman like her. If we read Genesis rightly, if we read any of the Bible rightly, we will realize that our Lord, our God, is in a league entirely of his own. And we cannot take our feelings, our thoughts, what we would do if I were God, I would. We cannot apply any of that to him because we're not him. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Who is he that he is mindful of us? He is beyond us. He's the main character of the story. We're the studio extras that they kind of bring in and don't even really pay. He is eternal. We are finite. He is. We are if he wills it. He creates from nothing. We fashion his created matter. God doesn't need us. He didn't create the universe because he's lonely. He has existed for an eternity before creation, so he didn't all of a sudden exist for an eternity and go, okay, now I better create something because I'm bored or because I need some extra people to hang around with. This God, who is so other than us in such a different category than we could ever be. This God who was in the beginning, he created. He saw fit in his incredible glory and mercy to create this universe and then allow us to know him. And not just allow us to know him by peering into the things he has created. He has given us a manual and say, this is how you know me. And then to top that off, he eventually comes himself as Jesus Christ and we get to know him personally. His creation actually knows him. We'll get more into God's role as creator, Lord willing, next week. But for now, Recognize that our God is so other, so much greater and more infinite and more powerful and more unfathomable than we could ever express or put into words. And the same God at the outset of Genesis created. He set in motion everything we see and know here today. It all starts here in Genesis 1.1. And in this contact between an infinite creator and his finite creation, we even get to see the seeds of the gospel. Like we said, everything from the rest of the Bible is in this first book of 
Genesis in kind of embryonic form. And we get to see seeds of things sown throughout. There is good news to be found. Here, even in the first verse of the Bible, before humanity existed, before the world existed, we know, or at least we think we do, how the rest of the story plays out. God creates the world, makes man and woman, places man and woman in the garden, there's a tree, there's a snake, there's sin, man falls, there's a relationship between God and man, but then that's broken, a promise is made, man is banished, flood, chosen, nation, sacrifices, slavery, temple, kings, prophets, silence, Mary, Bethlehem, Jesus, miracles, cross, tomb, resurrection, glorification, spread of the gospel, second coming. That's kind of general path. We kind of have a handle on that. We can get it. But before any of that, before humanity even existed, before there was anything to put humanity on or in, we have the absolute foundation of all of these things. Before it all is the very lens through which all of this can be viewed. In the beginning, God, eternal, infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful God, created. He is, and this creation, everything around us, is His idea. His perfect creation is His idea. And what He plans does not fail. Our infinite, self-existent, holy other, all-powerful God has ordered all things. He has created the heavens and the earth. And no matter what else we hear or talk about or dive into throughout these first 11 chapters in Genesis or anywhere else in the Scripture, the primary assumption is going to start that God is and this creation is His and not ours. He gets to plan and orchestrate things. We are His And this, for those who know him, for those who are in Christ, is good news. Because before we even existed, before there was an Adam and an Eve and a fall and sin and all of the rest of the baggage that comes along with humanity's existence, God is. And before any of those things, God created. God chose to create all of this, you and I and the person next door. God is good. God is perfect. He had a plan for every piece of this. And that plan involved what we see and know today. And that plan involved Jesus. That plan involved him coming and living and dying and being raised and glorified. But everything we see today was his plan. And he brings his plans to completion. He has a good hope and a good future for his people, for his creation. And he is taking us somewhere in the beginning, God. What's at the end? God comes and he will be our God and we will be his people. There is something we're looking forward to. There is an end that goes on forever. As our worship team 
comes and is going to lead us in a closing song. We're going to take a moment to pray. And as we do so, let this incredible news that our God is, that he was and is and is to come, let that steep, let that sink into our heart for a minute. For there is no better foundation than the God who is himself the very foundation of all things. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, you are. And it is beyond our ability to fathom that you would allow us to be. We are so imperfect. We fail so often. We don't acknowledge you for who you are. We sin against you. We break your law. We mistreat your people. You are, and yet you allow us to be. Lord, we thank you that we have a great and enduring and eternal hope not in ourselves, not in our righteousness, not in our ability to please you, not in anything else, but in the God who is. And that as we go into our world from this place, as we go out into creation, that it is a creation that you have made. Let us look for you Let us seek you where you may be found. Let us go to the map to your creation and your word and see you everywhere. And let us go into your creation as emissaries who would share the good news that this world is not just some happy accident that happened billions of years ago. But this world is a planned and tried and intentional creation of the perfect God who makes no mistakes. Let's share that with other people. For there is hope to be found in no one and nothing else. There is no enduring hope to be found without the God who is. Lord, as we sing this last song, let us worship the God who is. Let us worship you in spirit and in truth. Praise things in Jesus' name.